Would you join me in a word of prayer, please? Lord, we thank you for the great privilege of having your word. And Lord, in particular, having this Old Testament text, Lord, that speaks so very clearly to uh, the lives that we are living today. And so, Lord, what we, what we know not, Lord, would you, would you teach us? What we have not, would you give us? What we are not, Lord, would you make us? As we are settling down in your word, strengthen us now, Lord. Allow me to be your messenger, and Lord, help me to faithfully proclaim your truth for your glory and for the benefit and the equipping of your people. And Lord, may the gospel of Jesus Christ be the backdrop by which we seek to understand what it is you're unfolding for us in the, the pages of your word. We praise you now in your precious name. Amen. Well, I think all of you realize that water is essential for us. It's essential for survival. And in fact, if you think about the cities of the world, you will probably realize that most of them, if not all of them, are built next to um, the kind of water that is necessary for that city to survive. I mean, here we are living in the Bay Area. And of course, water is a big part of who we are. Um, but cities then are built near rivers, near oceans, near lakes, and things like that. Of course, people gather at wells, they gather at water fountains, they gather at lakes, they gather at Starbucks. Okay, I know for some of you, Starbucks is like water, right? But water is essential for survival. Crops are grown through careful irrigation. You've probably seen the signs up and down um, I-5 talking about the need for water there in the valley. And then, of course, cattle can only be raised if there is a water supply to help them uh, to grow and help them to be nourished. Now, if you think about Israel's geography, one of the things that was interesting to me when I went to visit Israel was the importance of the Golan Heights, which are up in the northern part. And what I found out, tour guide helped me understand this, is that if you have the Golan Heights, you have Israel. Why? Because the springs for the Jordan are in the Golan Heights. Water is essential to function. Water is essential for a nation. Here in California, we understand the importance of water. LA understands that their water comes from reservoirs in the north, and it's channeled all the way down there. Even here in the Bay Area, the water comes from particular reservoirs um, up in the Yosemite area. Water is essential, friends. So when we understand that water is essential, uh, we understand that it was, it was essential for the lives of the Israelites as they left Egypt. And what we find in this text is the motif of water. I want you to notice at the beginning, they travel in the wilderness and there's no water. Then they get to this place called Mara and there's bitter water. Then at the same place, by God's design, a miracle takes place and that bitter water is turned to sweet water. And eventually, God takes them to a place called Elam, where they find an abundance of water. And the text here this morning is screaming at us, pay attention to the water. Now, the water may not be the focal point. It's not just walking away today and saying, you know what, we just need to have water. It is saying, however, this is the, the, the motif that God is using. It's the tool that God is using to help his children understand some things about themselves. So you need to pay attention to what's going on here because this water is an essential need for Israel. Now let's just step back a little bit and think about the context. And just think about what has just taken place. Here they are in the wilderness in this text, but what they've gone through is an incredible season. They were in bondage, in slavery in Egypt, and God raised up a man by the name of Moses to come and help be the, the deliverer, be the mediator between God and his people, and to lead them out of Egypt, out of the bondage that they were in. And God brought 10 plagues on Egypt. God protected the Israelites during that time. And God eventually would bring them out through what we would understand to be the Passover and then the Red Sea. And that, of course, was a time when Israel saw their deliverance, but also saw God's wrathful judgment on 
Egypt. It was a powerful, incredible display of God's glory and his, his might against those who were shaking their fists at him. Now, these, uh, where they find them now is, is just after coming out of the Red Sea, and they've had this time of great celebration. We would say they are on a spiritual and physical high at this point in time. We are free from the Egyptians. They're looking back from where they came, and there's a body of water, and Egypt is on the other side. They're free and clear now of the Egyptians. What a day. What a celebration. And so it was right for them to celebrate and to sing. And so friends, this is the context, and now we find them moving out into the wilderness. And that's a, a place for us to understand that God is going to teach them something in that wilderness experience. But I want to think a little bit theologically now, because there's something that God is developing for us, a way in which it connects to where we live today. Israel is now out of Egypt, and God has led them into the wilderness on their journey to the promised land. So there's a, there is a destination, there is a goal, but they're not there yet, are they? He's brought them out of Egypt. In the same sense, God has brought us out of Egypt. He's brought us out of our bondage, and we have the promise of heaven, that promised land, so to speak, but we are now here living the Christian life. And so you see on the screen a number of kind of theological terms and some identifications that will help us understand what God is doing and how we can actually understand what God wants us to see in this text. Salvation and glorification. In between that, we have this thing called sanctification. We would call it progressive sanctification. We have Egypt, we have the wilderness, and we have Canaan, the goal. We have then the sinful life, and we have heaven. But between that, we have this thing called the Christian life. And theologically, that's kind of understood in these terms, the already and the not yet. We've already been saved, and we are awaiting that the fullness of that salvation, which ultimately is glorification, but we haven't arrived there yet. So we have the certainty, the already, that's driving us but we have the not yet. We're not yet fully at the place where we are in the presence of God in heaven. This, friends, is where God has called us to live. This is the Christian life. And so we need to understand that in this already but not yet place, this Christian life, God is at work in us, and he wants to teach us. So, friends, we've been gloriously saved through the gospel of Jesus Christ, but now we're called to sanctification, to growing in Christ, as we then await our glorification and our entrance into heaven. Now, having looked theologically at this passage, I want to think about it in its bigger picture, in its context and where it sits. Right after the song of Moses and Miriam, now we have four, I might want to say, crises that Israel has to go through. And our text is the first one. There's a lack of water. As we get next week into chapter 16, there's going to be a lack of food. And then interestingly enough, in chapter 17, there's a lack of water again. And then in chapter 17 at the end, there's going to be this kind of this unprovoked act of aggression by a desert tribe. And you've got to think to yourselves, God has brought Israel out of Egypt to what? To starve, to thirst, and to be attacked. Sounds like fun to me, right? And of course, that's how the people start thinking. And we realize there's a reason then for their complaining. And there's a theme that God wants us to see in, in that big picture. That not only is it the grace of God that gets Egypt or gets Israel out of Egypt, it's the grace of God that preserves them in the wilderness. See, grace is not just for salvation. Grace is for our sanctification and ultimately will be the means of our glorification. So God is not coming to us here saying, here are some rules and standards that you have to live by in order to be saved. He's saying, now that you've entered into this realm of your Christian life, I want to guide you. I want to teach you. I want to shape you. I want to mold you. I want to expose your heart to you and show you the corrective 
by means of my grace. So now, as we focus on our present text, I want to draw your attention then to this part, this proposition. Learning to trust in God while living out the Christian life. Now, friends, that's something we should always be doing. We should always seek to see as central to God's purposes in our life right now to be not just living our lives, but learning to trust God while living out the Christian life. Now, friends, we have the certainty of our salvation as the foundation, pushing us from behind. And we have the hope of heaven, our glorification, that is pulling us yet in the future. So we have these two things that are encouraging us now to live this Christian life. And we're called to do that while we're trusting in God's word, his promises, and and just in the character of God also. So this morning, let's think then about how we learn to trust God while living out the Christian life. And the first thing we notice here is the struggle that we will all face. This is the struggle that Israel faced. And I want you to notice verses 22 and 23. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. Just think now a little bit about what's going on. We'll backtrack again. And I want you to notice, first of all, there there was this enjoyment of victory. It says in verse 22, Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. Well, what were they doing in the Red Sea? They were celebrating. They were rejoicing. They were reveling in what God had done. He gloriously delivered them from Egypt. They are now free. I mean, it's just a wonderful, wonderful time for Israel. And friends, this is, this is much more glorious than we can even imagine. When the United States of America or, you know, de- declared their independence from England and, and they became their own country, we celebrate that every year. As a, as a joyful time, the, the birth of a nation, what a wonderful thing that is, doesn't compare to what's happening here in the book of Exodus. When the, the end of World War II took place, there was cheering, there was celebration. Friends, it was great. It doesn't compare to what's happening in this text. These people have been delivered by God in, in miraculous, majestic wonderful ways, and they are free. And friends, it was right for them to celebrate. It was right for Moses and the congregation to sing praises to God. It was right for Miriam and the women to to encourage the congregation to sing, sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider are thrown into the sea. And friends, it's right to have a season of celebration and joy for such a radical deliverance. But that deliverance marked the beginning of a journey that God had called them to. So not only was was there this enjoyment of victory, there was also now this necessity for them to face reality. Just like the Egyptians had to be moved by God to set out uh, to the Red Sea. Notice that. Moses, this is God through Moses, is saying, all right, we we need to leave. (laughs) We've been celebrating. That's all good. But there's a journey that we must go on. So there's a reality that needs to to be realized, needs to be faced. The Red Sea, friends, was comforting. It was comfortable. The wilderness was kind of out there. It was daunting. We haven't gone there yet. I I reflected on this a little bit. I just thought to myself, uh, something I noticed that when I was in college, I went to a college in in the South, a Christian college, and... What I noticed is a lot of students would graduate from college and they would live in that same territory. It was almost like the, the college was the, was the mecca. They had to stay around there, but moving away was kind of like, oh, I'm not sure if I can do that. They were comfortable. They were safe in what they knew. Even people saying, we want to start a church in this area. Friends, they didn't need to start a church, and there's plenty of churches in that area, but there was a comfort in that area. And friends, that's, that's what happens to us sometimes is that we can get so comfortable 
with this place of celebration that we don't want to move beyond that. Friends, we're not called to settle down at the Red Sea, but to journey ahead into the wilderness. Now, it might be uncharted territory for us. It probably is. It might seem difficult, full of potential trials and struggles. Staying at the Red Sea might seem far more appealing to us. But God has called us to move out and to move on. And the Apostle Paul uses the imagery, doesn't he, in in 1 Corinthians, of a, of a child that is supposed to grow to maturity, grow to adulthood. And he's, he's, he's speaking to the Corinthians saying, look, you were born as children and you haven't grown. You can only taste milk. That's all you can, that's all you can actually endure. You, you haven't matured to get meat. And friends, maturity in Christ comes as a result of walking faithfully in the wilderness. See, God has placed the wilderness for us as the place of our growth. When I was in high school, I played three varsity sports. I played soccer, which I was somewhat naturally gifted at, so I I was pretty confident as a player. I played basketball, and I played baseball. Baseball I did okay with because I used to play cricket in England, and typically if the ball was low and outside, I was going for it and hitting it because that's what you do in cricket. Um, until I started playing softball, and then it all kind of went downhill from there. Um, but when it came to basketball, I, I had some skills. Um, I could do well, like, you know, at the park and one-on-one and that kind of stuff. But when it came to, to team basketball, as much as I was on the team, um, I really struggled because I didn't always have the confidence that I needed in order to play on the team. So I was on the team, and I was glad to be a part of the team. I loved the school that I was at. I loved the uniforms that we had. I loved to be a part of of being in that team and playing in games. Um, Quite frankly, I loved sitting on the bench. Um, I was the third string point guard. And to, to let you know how many times I actually got into a game, it would be like this. If the coach wanted to put me in, to check me in, he would send a telegram, and finally it would get down, way down the end of the bench, and I would get it and finally make my way up there. I mean, it didn't happen too often. And quite frankly, I didn't have the confidence. And I would sit there saying, I'm glad to be on this team, but coach, don't, don't call me to play. Right? I mean, I'm, I'm afraid to get out there. There's all sorts of different things that are going on there. And friends, it's wonderful to be a part of the team. It's another thing to, to wear the uniform. You can do that proudly. But the whole point of being a part of the team and the whole point of wearing a uniform is to get out there and play, isn't it? See, it's not enough to wear the uniform. We must be ready to play. And friends, there's a sense in which we need to to think this through. We're all part of a new team. That's the body of Christ. We all are wearing a new uniform. We are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. We're identified with Christ. We have Christ written on our logo, so to speak. This is the team that we're a part of. And it may be more comfortable just to sit back and rejoice over the wonder of our uh, conversion, which is good, and we should celebrate that, but to stay there and actually not get out. Now, you might physically get out and go to work, but you're not beginning to apply the things that God wants you to apply as a Christian living out your life in the context of the world that he's placed you in. God has called us and delivered us so that we can step out on a new journey, and that new journey is the Christian life. So God calls us out into the wilderness. So they're enjoying victory. They're facing reality. But now now we have to understand this. We need to expect difficulty. See, life will often be bitter, and it will drive us to despair and bear fruit in sinful responses. After joy, we will encounter struggle. After grace, we will face anxiety. After celebration, we will confront crisis. After deliverance, we will battle disappointment. And one of the evangelistic lies that we can be guilty of communicating is that If you put your faith and trust in God, everything will get better. And so people believing that make a profession of faith, and there's a joy and a celebration for a season, but 
when life doesn't get better. In fact, sometimes it even gets worse. People then begin to lose their faith in what they bought into. They say things like, I thought that with Christ, everything would get better, that my problems would be over, that my struggles would be gone, that my sickness would be healed, that my family would be reconciled, that I would have more money in the bank. And they may be tempted to conclude, following Christ doesn't work. What I was promised hasn't been realized. I believed an empty lie. And friends, hear this. Unfortunately, it may be because we have oversold the gospel to say something that it never intended to say. The gospel never intended to say, if you put your faith and trust in Christ, everything will get better. In other words, you would now be living the superhuman Christian life with all these resources and all this help. That's not the gospel. That is actually a form of prosperity gospel that is often preached and proclaimed. That's what makes those kinds of claims. And we can be guilty of that because we're so eager to share the gospel with people. What happens with conversion, what happens with the gospel is that you are now in a right standing with God. Still going to face struggles. Still going to struggle with sin. Problems are still going to reign. But now you have a God perspective in dealing with those things. Problems don't disappear, but God now helps you deal with those things. So friends, have you been guilty of overselling the gospel? I would encourage you to, to, to review that and to consider that. Maybe you've bought into a gospel that has been an oversold to you, that you are expecting all these magical things to happen now. The magical thing, and not magical in any real sense of the word, but the real transforming thing that happened is that you were once enslaved to sin, and now you are free because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Okay? So, friends, it's important when we share the gospel, we don't add to it, and we don't present something that Scripture doesn't promise. The gospel is not a get-rich-and-quick scheme. It is God's reconciling man to himself through Christ's death on the cross. And any riches we may have are the spiritual riches of Christ's righteousness that we have now because we are His. Now, we are to expect difficulty. Let's note their struggle. Let's think through what they experienced here um, in this time of difficulty. First of all, I want you to notice that they had real expectations. All right? After, uh, after the exodus, they struggled here with expectations. What were their expectations? Well, if you remember when God spoke to Moses in chapter 3, and then when Moses did what God said by going to Israel and also going to Pharaoh and giving a message, here is the message that he gave. And Moses gave this a number of times. God says, let my people go so that they can journey into the wilderness three days and serve me or worship me. Chapter 3, verse 18. Chapter 5, verse 3. Chapter 7, verse 16. Chapter 9, verses 1 and 13. All kind of give a summary of that statement. Now, of course, we know what happens, right? Pharaoh refuses. God brings the plague. God then judges uh, Egypt, brings Pharaoh down to his knees. He delivers the, the children of Israel through the waters, and now they find themselves traveling in the wilderness. And how long have they been traveling in the wilderness? Well, notice what it says again in verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went, how long? Three days in the wilderness and found no water. So they're, they're doing what God was saying. This is the plan. Here's how it's going to unfold. Now remember, when they left, they left with their families, they left with their provisions for the journey, which would be food and water and clothing and gold and silver that they had. They took their flocks. But after three days, they're no longer finding any water. In fact, the, the, the resources that they had are being depleted. And they had families to take care of. They had flocks to water. They were in the wilderness. 
and there is no water. And they were expecting to go out into the wilderness three days and do what? Worship. So, I mean, you can understand some of their confusion. You can understand that they're expecting now, having been delivered, to go three days in the wilderness, and somehow God is just going to set some kind of a situation up, and it's going to be another time of great celebration because they are going to go and worship him. So, friends, when they get to Marah, you can understand that they were anxious, they were looking for, for water, but they're discouraged. And ultimately, there is genuine disappointment. They come to Mara, and what appears now to be an oasis, a pool of water in the, in the wilderness, whereby they could be refreshed and satisfied. And they're probably all talking to each other, saying, oh, yes, the water's up there. Oh, we're going to finally get our, our, our thirst quenched, and our, our cattle's going to be satisfied. And, oh, all right, God will have taken care of us. But when they get there, they find that the water is not drinkable. The idea here, this bitterness idea, is that this word has, has chemicals in it. It's poisonous. You can't drink it. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be harmful to you to do that. So they couldn't even, they couldn't even taste it. Um, probably something like being in the Red Sea. If, you, if you've ever been to Israel and you've been to the Red Sea, it's like there's so much chemical in the water that you, just, you don't want to put it in your mouth at all. It's just nasty, right? Uh, maybe it's kind of like going to the ocean, but, um, but worse than that even, right? So their need was real. In other words, thirst is a natural human response that needs to be satisfied. Let's just recognize that. Their hope was raised. They see this oasis and thinking, aha, we just need to reach that destination, and we're going we're gonna to have that thirst uh, quenched, and their, their disappointment is genuine. And I think if you were in their situation, you probably would be struggling yourself, all right? Because why? Uh, drinking is important, and water is essential for us. But here's the problem, friends. Their bitterness bore fruit in sin, didn't it? And so we move then from the struggle that we will face to this sin now that we commit. Verse 24, in fact, uh, if you notice in verse 24, it says, And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? So their response to this problem, their response to this trial, to this bitterness that they're experiencing, was to respond sinfully by means of grumbling. Now, friends, how do you respond? How do you respond when you don't get what you expect? How do you respond when you're disappointed with your circumstances? Yesterday, my wife and I went out. We did some shopping. We were looking for some furniture. And while we're out, we're like, you know what? Let's go to Costco. We need to get some eggs and some things there. Of course, you know, we started to pile more things in there. But we thought to ourselves, you know what? Let's go ahead and get a Costco pizza. That would be easier for us, you know, so we don't have to go home and cook and all that kind of stuff. All right, great idea. So as we're going through the cash, you know, cashier, um, you know, we, we add there, you know, one pepperoni pizza. And we go through, and of course now, right, you know, in, in this COVID kind of scenario, um, you're not just standing in line necessarily. They just want you to wait for your number to be called. They really don't want you to interact too much with the people behind the counter. And, um, you know, we, we were waiting then for our number to be called, and I'm just seeing all these people going and getting their stuff, man. They're just flying by. They're going to the checkout. I could see them there. They didn't do it at the cashier. They waited until they got to the checkout, and all of a sudden, their food is ready for them, and it's just kind of like, what's going on here? Where's my pizza? I ordered it a long time ago, right? And you, this is what you're thinking, and then I look at the, the oven where the pizzas are coming out, and this pizza's coming out, and they're boxing them. I think, okay, there it is, you know. I see another one come out. All right, there it is. So I'm going to go up and I'm going to ask. And, you know, I, this is my number. I ordered a pizza, and is it going to be ready? You know, I'm thinking it's the one that they just set aside. And the guy's like, "Oh no, no." He says, "Your pizza's still in the oven." Okay, all right. So we stand back, and again, more people are getting all their food, and all these you know people taking pizza and chicken bakes and all this kind of stuff. And again, I see another pizza come out. I think, ah, oh, there it is. Mm -mm, wasn't mine. Mine was still in the oven. It must have been 25 minutes later, and finally we get this pizza. You know, and, and in my heart, 
I want to grumble. I want to complain. I want to say, this is not good service. You know, and my point I'm sharing here is this, is that even in the mundane things of life, we're prone to complain and to grumble. Here's the reality. We had a cart full of food and we were coming home to a refrigerator that was full of food, to a pantry that was full of food. And in my heart, I'm grumbling and complaining about pizza, right? When I have an abundance of resources that God has blessed me with. We so easily complain about things and grumble about things and murmur about things. So the issue was my expectations not being met and, and being realized in the way that I wanted them to be realized. And friends, this is what Israel is going through here. We have an expectation. It hasn't been realized. And the result of that is bearing fruit, giving birth then to sin. And the sin now bears fruit in at least three ways. The first one we see there in the text is their grumbling. They turned on Moses with grumbling. And we will see that this grumbling, this murmuring, is going to be one of the besetting sins of Israel as a people as they journey through the wilderness. The idea of a besetting sin is this is something that becomes now a habit for them. This is how they think. This is like a default sinful behavior. The word grumbling, also translated murmuring, though, has the idea of complaining. It's complaining that God or to God because you don't have what you want. It's complaining to God because you don't have what you want when you want it in the manner that you want it. And God, interestingly enough, will be faithful to provide for them. But again, they will grumble. Now, friends, we must remember that they were being guided by a cloud in the wilderness. They weren't necessarily following Moses. Moses was following the cloud, of course, which is the physical representation of God on the earth, guiding them to where they needed to go. Isn't it interesting that they don't speak to God? They speak to the physical representative of God, and they grumble and complain to him. So rather than turning to God, they turn against the mediator God had raised up to be his representative and his leader. It was the spirit of critical discontent. And friends, although the sin of grumbling is a central issue here with Israel, our sin can bear fruit in many ways. It can be anger. It can be fear. It can be jealousy. It can be comfort. It can be despair. It can be wickedness. It can be unbelief. That's just a short list. But this whole idea of sin here is marked out by grumbling. But you can also say, secondly, that there is this forgetfulness going on, isn't there? In fact, the commentary of Scripture here helps us. Psalm 106, verse 7, is reflecting back on the Israelites. It's kind of a general theme here. And we read there, Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. And I really specifically, this is talking about what happened before they went through the waters of deliverance. But it's, it's, it's a scathing rebuke of just their attitude that, that what happened in Egypt maybe didn't have quite the impact on them that it should have. They were so quick to celebrate their deliverance, but after only three days in the wilderness, they've forgotten about uh, God about who he is and what he's done and what he has promised them. And ultimately, this is a lack of faith on their part. They failed to turn to God in faith. So there's this domino effect going on. Your circumstances are bitter, so you begin to grumble and complain. You are forgetful of God and his promises. And then ultimately, you demonstrate that the heart of your problem is that you lack faith in God. Grumbling may be the besetting sin, but behind that, is a lack of faith in God. It's a lack of trusting in Him. And friends, it's easy for us then to read this text and want to reach in and to slap Israel silly, saying, hey, haven't you seen the Lord deliver you from bondage? Haven't you seen His power, His majesty, and His justice on display? How could you start grumbling? How could you fail so horribly by lacking in faith? I mean, it's just been three days. 
But the reality is we do the exact same things, don't we? We can read about the attributes of God. We can affirm them. We can articulate them. We can even worship God because of them. We can reflect on God's dealings with his people in the past and be in awe of his power and grace and sing songs that talk about them. But when we are faced with our wilderness trial, we respond sinfully and evidence our lack of faith in him. Now, friends, there's three basic principles that we need to see here. Number one, we must look to anticipate struggles. Living the Christian life includes struggle and trial and difficulty. Uh, we've gone through that. Book of Job, book of James, throughout Scripture, you're going to see that, right? Secondly, if that is true, then we must look to avoid sin. We must recognize that there is going to be struggle. Therefore, if there is going to be struggle, I'm going to have a tendency in my flesh to want to sin. And so I've got to be prepared, and I've got to be ready to not sin and try and, uh, to, to handle and confront the thing that is before me in a way that would please God. So finally, then, we must look to appeal to God for help. Rather than kind of grumble, rather than turn to anger or something else, we turn to God himself in prayer, asking for help, asking for guidance, asking for his power to meet the need of that particular moment. So there's a struggle we face. There's a sin we commit, friends. But there's also a sanctification that we experience. And now we're starting to get to the heart of the matter. Now one of the purposes of God with Israel in the wilderness is to teach them to live by grace. And we could translate that and say, one of the purposes that God has for you as you're living the Christian life with the struggle and with the temptation to sin is to teach you to live by grace. Now, living by grace might sound like an easy kind of living. I mean, we are talking about grace after all, right? But living by grace means living in utter dependence upon the provision of God. Living by grace means living with a, a bold and active faith in God's word and God's provision. It means trusting him and accepting his providence as good and wise, even when we can't sort it all out. And the Israelites here struggled. They struggled to live by faith and instead sought to live by sight. They wanted to live by what they could understand, by what they could control. And so they rejected God and did not turn to him in faith. And what you would expect to read next would be a God that would turn toward them in wrath and anger. But that is not what we have here. What we have here is God, the covenant-keeping God, who wants to teach them in the wilderness, friends. And that is what we need to see. That is what we read next, isn't it? And I want you to notice the testing God uses now to mature us. Jump down to verse 25 and, and the second part of it. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them. He tested them. Now, here's the point of the section. It is not enough for the people of God to sing and to rejoice. They must also listen to God and obey him. Now, friends, if that is not relevant for the church today, I don't know what is. Paul warns us about those in the church during the last days having the appearance of godliness, right? Songs, praise, but denying its power. To put it a little differently, freedom from bondage to Pharaoh doesn't mean that anything goes for the children of Israel. No, freedom from serving Pharaoh means freedom to serve God. Listen to what Ligon Duncan says. Service to Pharaoh was tyranny. Service to God is itself true freedom, but true freedom always means obedience to God's word, listening to him. That's, friends, that's really important because we often forget that. The trials we face are also tests 
to see if we will be people who will turn to God when we find ourselves in those trials. Or we'll seek to try to handle those trials in other ways. So the question is, will we seek out his word? Will we listen to his word? Will we obey his word? Now, friends, the Lord's testing is not isolated to this particular passage. In fact, it's throughout Scripture. I'll just highlight a few places for you. We saw it in the book of James, didn't we? James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So God here causes or uses tests to grow and to mature us, not to put us in more bondage, but to reveal our true nature, what's really in our hearts. So we're either going to turn to the Lord in faith, or as the Israelites did here, we're going to respond sinfully in some way, by grumbling or anger or some other sinful way, as well as what's behind that is a lack of trust in Christ. Interestingly enough, later in the book of Exodus, Moses says this, God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. See, so God's purpose in a test is not that he's just up there uh, in heaven somewhere trying to play whack-a-mole with your life. Every time you do some sinful thing, he's trying to whop you on the head. No, he's a gracious God. He is a covenant-keeping God. But the, the Christian life is the time for us to grow in our sanctification. It is the means by which that growth is taking place. And of course, that's why a verse like 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is helpful to us, especially in light of the context of what's being said there. And the context of 1 Corinthians 10, in particular, is what we're reading here in the book of Exodus. I want to draw your attention now, and I want to encourage you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 10, and we're going to read verses 1 through verse 13, but I want you to notice how it connects to this whole Exodus wilderness wandering um, situation that Israel finds themselves in. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as an example for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, some of those, those, those themes or the things that he's talking about are yet to take place, but these are all happening in their wilderness experience. Now, verse 11, this is for us. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down so the, the them in this passage is the second generation that Moses is writing to, right? This next generation is looking back at the people in the wilderness saying, don't be like your forefathers here, right? Be warned. But then he says, they were written down for our instruction. So this is here, this, this Exodus experience, what we're reading here in the book of Exodus is written for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Now, verse 13, no temptation or no trial has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation or the test, he will also provide the way of escape or the, the way out. He'll give you the path to follow that you may be able to endure it. Now, again, we often forget the last part. We, we, we think that, you know, that God's just going to come and lift us out of our problem, and there it is. But that's not how God works. 
the purpose of the wilderness, the purpose of the Christian life, is for us to be on a journey where God is training us and shaping us and chipping away at us so that we're becoming more and more like His Son, Jesus Christ. And friends, it's important for us to see that because God is at work then through this test to mature us. So what is the test that God gives Israel in this context? It is the initial wandering in the wilderness and the finding of no water, ultimately the finding of bitter water, and they failed miserably. And so God uses this as a teaching moment. And I want you to notice, he says that this is a statute and this is a rule. And what he's saying here is that we need to be guided by God's truth. All right? Now, these are not two separate things, but it, it is a Hebrew expression that uses two words to describe the same thing. What we have here is a formula for walking faithfully with God. Now, this is not a formula for actually your conversion. This is a formula for now, now that you have become a Christian, how you are to walk. Notice what it says. It's an if you blank, then I will blank statement, right? It comes as a, as a covenant conditional formula. If you will, and notice what he says, diligently listen to the voice of the Lord. If you will do what is right in his eyes, if you will give ear to his commandments, in other words, you will put them as a priority and that they're feeding your thinking, they're feeding your desires. If you will keep all his statutes, right? So if you'll listen, if you'll do, if you'll give ear, if you will keep, it doesn't say it in the text, but the idea is then I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. It isn't that God is waiting up in heaven, like I said, waiting to pounce on Israel, delighting in the fact that he can now judge them. It is God saying, this is the foundation for fellowship, for favor, for blessing. When you listen to me and you obey me, our relationship will be blessed. There will be favor. There will be fruitfulness. He's saying, I love you. You are my people. I saved you. Now, we can do this the easy way, or we can do it the hard way. Now, if you listen to me, if you do what I say, if you give ear to my commandments, if you keep all my statutes, then this is going to be an easy journey. But oh, how we like to do things differently, right? Again, friends, freedom from slavery doesn't mean do what you want. Freedom from slavery means but we live a life that is guided by obedience and trust in Christ. So God's truth is to guide his children so that they can enjoy their freedom. Now, friends, we, we see this in our country, don't we? People want freedom, but they want freedom that is not bound by rules or statutes. They want freedom to do their own thing. That's a definition of anarchy. It is only through the establishment of good and righteous laws that true freedom can exist. So practically speaking, friends, that's why we need righteous judges and honorable police force, pol politicians who truly are concerned about the welfare of people and not their own finances and not their own party and stuff. It also is why we need citizens that are both loving and respecting the righteous rule of law and their fellow citizens. See, freedom comes with some, some guidelines, listening to God and obeying Him. So we're guided by His truth. Secondly, notice here, we're strengthened by God's character. Isn't it interesting here that He identifies, He self-identifies one of His attributes. I am the Lord, your healer. Now, some take this as a blanket statement to say God wants to heal everyone, right? That conclusion, of course, chooses to ignore the many places in Scripture where God's people find themselves sick and the many te texts that teach about sickness and trials and disease, the book of Job in particular, God is not promising that His children will never get sick or encounter diseases, but that they will not suffer the plagues like Egypt did and that they needed to turn to Him for healing if they found themselves afflicted as a result of sin. God's desire for his people was that they would act 
in such a way that judgments like those he put on Egypt would not be put on them. It is the Old Testament way of saying about God to his people, I am the great physician. So when we put those two things together, we see that God is calling Israel to listen and obey him, and the result will be their health and well-being. And if we want to put that in a more contemporary way, we can say, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. It's not just a trite little song you learn in Sunday school. It's true. We just need to get it into our hearts, trusting and obeying the Lord. So we've seen this the, the, the test God uses to mature us. But now, as we move back a little bit in our text, I want you to notice the example God gives to encourage us. Verse 25 now, And he cried to the Lord, this is Moses, and the Lord showed him a log and threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. Now the Israelites, friends, had failed the test. They lacked faith in God, and they grumbled at Marah. And Moses took their complaints. But notice, Moses faced the same struggle. Moses encountered the same disappointment. Moses endured the people's sinful response. And so Moses here shines as an example for Israel and for us of what it looks like to turn to God in faith, ready to obey. And in this one verse, we can see God's provision through the faithful prayer of one of his children. Let's just highlight what Moses does here. First of all, Moses turned to God for help, didn't he? He cried to the Lord. That doesn't, he's, not, he's not crying against the Lord. He's crying out to God, appealing to him for his situation. So you have to wonder if Moses is reminded of his first encounter with God when God says this. This is Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land. I have heard their cry. And he now goes to God. He cries to the Lord. Secondly, Moses listened to God's instruction. He threw, uh, God showed him a log, right? Now, literally, the idea of showed, the word means to instruct. So it was the idea of God instructing Moses about a particular log, a particular tree is what it's literally saying, and a piece of that tree, and what he was to do then with that particular tree. And we see he's supposed to throw it into the water. So God is instructing him. That's the idea of show. And Moses is listening to these instructions. But friends, it's one thing to listen to the instructions. It's another thing to actually follow the instructions, okay? And that's what happens next. Moses obeyed God's instructions. He threw this tree, this log, into the water. He continues to obey. He obeys by not only listening, but following through with what God says. And then notice what happens. God answers Moses' prayer for help. And the water became sweet. Now, friends, this, this is a miracle. This is, this is God's provision Moses listens and obeys, and the result is that the water now is sweet. They are able to drink. They're able to be satisfied. Now, do you see the powerful lesson that's going on here? I want, I want you to just kind of step back a little bit from this text and just put your theological cap on. What we see here is that God would change the condition of a body of water through the obedience of a mediator and a chosen piece of wood. Here, the piece of wood makes the bitter water sweet. Earlier in the Exodus story, the piece of wood, Moses' staff, would be put into the water and would make fresh water turn to blood. In other words, there's an instrument, a piece of wood, used in a way that God has said that it should be used, that accomplishes God's purpose. And friends, many years later, on a hill outside the city of Jerusalem, there would be a mediator, there would be blood, and there would be a piece of wood, and the bitterness of bondage would be replaced with the sweetness of freedom. 
It is the sweetness that Israel had and needed to embrace. And friends, it is this sweetness that the church has and needs to embrace. Living by grace means embracing the sweetness of freedom that comes through listening to and obeying the voice of the Lord in his word. Let me say that again. Living by grace means embracing the sweetness of freedom that comes through listening to and obeying the voice of the Lord in his word. See, God is at work sanctifying us, growing us, shaping us. The trial that we may experience, we may not like. But how do we respond to that trial? And what is it that God wants us to do? He wants to listen. He wants us to obey. And the result is that he will be growing us to be more like his son, Jesus Christ. Now, as we move on in this story, we've gone from the struggle we face to the sin we commit and the sanctification we experience while on that journey. But ultimately, in this passage, we are taken to Elam. And what we find here is that Elam is a place of abundance. They're pushed out by God from the Red Sea into the wilderness of Shur. They, they find the emptiness of Mara and the disappointment that is there. And finally, by God's providence, they, rely, uh, they arrive at Elam. Friends, wow, what a place this is. This is supposed to, to scream from the text some things. There is symbolism that is, that, is, uh, that is kind of meant to kind of impress you here. Not necessarily literalism. I don't know that you would go to Elam and actually find 12 wells and 70 trees. There's a symbolic statement here. These 12 wells, the 12 tribes, the 70 trees, the, the 70 elders. But the emphasis here is this overwhelming abundance, this overwhelming satisfaction, this overwhelming joy as you take in this oasis in the middle of the desert. Twelve springs that satisfy thirst, 70 trees to satisfy hunger. So from no water to bitter water to sweet water to an abundance of water, it's screaming at us. Pay attention to what it is that God does with the water. But on your journey, listen, trust, right? So it's important for us to see the point of this text. The Christian life will be marked by four things, highlighting. that we've, we've seen it a little bit here. I'm just highlighting it again. There'll be times, first of all, of struggle. Times when we'll be anxious, disappointed, fearful, uncertain, in great danger, under great opposition. Secondly, there'll be times of great failure. I'm sure that you've had an experience with that. We all have, and we all still will. And those times of failure are times when we don't listen to God. We fail to obey his word. We fall flat on our face. And we allow ourselves to be drawn away and enticed by our own sinful desires. But hear this. God is not beating us up. We are his covenant children. We are his children in the body of Christ. He cares about us. All of this is preparation for eternity. All of this is the means by which growth takes place. And so not only will there be times of failure, but there'll be times of testing. When through adversity, God is growing and maturing us to be more like his son. But then, friends, notice this, that there will also be times of great refreshing. And I'm talking here about gospel refreshing. Refreshment in the gospel that helps us to face the difficulties and trials we're facing on the journey through the wilderness. Now, friends, I would like for us to consider the oasis at Elam. And I would like to say that the oasis at Elam is for us a place to gather. It's a place to weep or cry out to the Lord. It's a place to, to rest. It's a place to recover. It's a place to gain strength. It's a place where in the difficulty of our journey, we can come and, and drink freely from God's well. It's a place to be satisfied and strengthened by God's word. It's a place to prepare for the next leg of the journey. And maybe we could put it this way. Elam is an ever-present oasis available to all Christians on their journey 
to the Christian life. See, friends, it's when the church is gathered together, feasting on the preached word, celebrating the Lord's Supper, and worshiping God in song. That's Elam. That's the oasis. That's a refreshment. It's when godly friends meet together or call each other on the phone or are experiencing a Zoom conversation to strengthen and encourage one another in the faith. It's when God's child takes time for personal devotion, seeking to be in the Word and going to Him in prayer. These are all times of refreshment that God builds into our Christian life. So while we're facing these struggles and these trials, there is always the availability of Elam for us. It's when we listen to sermons while we're doing the dishes or cutting the grass. It's while we're listening to Christian songs that will feed our hungry souls. It's it's reading a good, solid Christian book that drives us to see the gospel in a newer, deeper way. It's when we personally experience ministry, maybe a mission trip, maybe an evangelistic opportunity, maybe a conversation with a neighbor. But these are are all times of refreshment that, that, that strengthen us and bring us to the place where we're ready to meet the next challenge and the next trial. God doesn't abandon us. He's built all these things into our Christian life. And so when someone says, you know what, I don't need a church, they're saying, I don't need Elam. I can do it on my own, but you can. You can have your own personal walk with God. But when you read the Word of God, what you're going to read in the Word of God is the need for the body of Christ to gather together. You're going to see the need for community. And we're all hungry for that. So friends, what I'm trying to convey is that throughout our Christian walk, the oasis of Elam awaits us in many forms. And Elam is a joy that our hearts long for, isn't it? in the midst of our trial, in the midst of our struggle, to be able to pause and turn to the Lord and experience Elam, refreshment. That's a a great privilege, friends, that we should take advantage of. Or pick up the phone and talk to a friend. Or make sure you're gathered for God's church as they are celebrating together. My friends, many years later, Jesus, the Son of God, would journey through Samaria, and he would encounter a sinful woman drawing water out of a well. You'll find this in John chapter 4 and verse 7. And I want to read this because I want to draw this, this motif of water together and see why it's so important for us as we think through the trials that we face. Verse 7 of John 4, a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying uh, to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? Have, he gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. He's pointing to the well. But whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Friends, this is Elam. This is our Elam. Jesus Christ is the one who is the water of life for us. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Friends, it's a wonderful reality that as God's children, we have the blessed assurance of this constant refreshment at the well that is Jesus, the one who provides for us living water. So as we bring things to a close, I want us to think again about our Christian life, and I want to leave you with some challenges 
uh, for your consideration. Number one is this, reflect upon your freedom. Now, you reflect upon your freedom not just by focusing on the good bits of the gospel. You reflect upon your freedom by actually taking in the sinfulness of your sin before you actually were drawn by God and regenerated by him through what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead. But by God's grace, you were made alive. You were blind. But now you can see. Now, what's the point of being alive and seeing if you're not actually doing something with life or doing something with your new fresh eyesight. You see, the point here is that God has brought you out to live. Reflect on your freedom. Secondly, embrace your struggle. When that next trial comes or struggle comes, however mundane it is, just remind yourself, this is all part of God's refining of me, of his sanctification of my life, of, of him moving me toward Christ-likeness. So see it for what it is. See it as the test. See it as the, the tool God is using ultimately to do number three, to strengthen your faith. So grow in your knowledge of God. Certainly do all those things. Remember the ways that he's proved himself faithful. Fully believe in his promises. But, but when he puts you in a trial, trust him. Try him. Prove him to be the great God he says that he is by listening to him and obeying him. And finally, pursue a growing fellowship with him. Walk with him personally. This is feeding at the waters, at the oasis of refreshment that is Elam. Walk with him personally. Walk with him organically. What I mean by that is with other people that are helping you do the same thing. And then ultimately walking with him corporately. Uh, make sure you're, you're plugged into the church where you're going to find the refreshment, where you're going to find the support, where you're going to find the counsel, where you're going to find explanation of what it is that God says and what he means by what he says and what that looks like in your life. God has called us to trust him while we are living out this Christian life. We've already been given the certainty of our salvation. We have not yet entered into eternity. We have those promises, one a foundation, one a hope, that God has called us to live in this, this season called our Christian life, and to do it by trusting him and obeying his word. May God help us to do that. Lord, help us today. Thank you for your kindness in giving us this text. Thank you for your kindness, Lord, for not abandoning us. Lord, even thank you for your kindness for allowing us to go through times of difficulty and struggle because behind that, Lord, you are being glorified as well as we are being grown to be what you want us to be. So, Lord, help us to, to change a little bit of our perception. And to see, Lord, that along the way that our disappointments, our discouragements, the fears and anxieties we may have, not all of that necessarily is sinful. Some of that is just our humanity kicking in when we face difficulty. But, Lord, may we see how our heart rises up in sinfulness rather than in faith and in trust and obedience. And, Lord, as we learn that, would you shape us and grow us? And, Lord, on that journey, would you allow us to stop and to pause and to tap in to the refreshment that you have provided for us, that you have given for us in your word. The body of Christ, the Lord's Supper, uh, the people of God, the word of God, uh, the opportunity to sing praises to you. Lord, we praise you for who you are, for what you've done. We praise you for what you are still doing in our lives. Give us wisdom and discernment now as we seek to live our lives for your glory. In your precious name, we ask these things. Amen.